So this is the final week of our series, Dangerous Intersection, where we've been exploring the life and teachings of the Apostle Paul from the New Testament, and specifically how they inform the three major elements of E3's vision statement, that E3 will be a community of radically transformed disciples living at the intersection of deep faith, authentic community, and emerging culture. And this week, we focus in on that final element, emerging culture. Now, the term emerging culture, when you really dive into it, isn't actually that complicated. It's actually quite simple in and of itself. Culture is defined as the customs, arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or society. And saying emerging culture simply acknowledges that cultures are ever-evolving. It's the current expression of a society's culture right now, as compared to the past, to what it was years ago, decades ago, centuries ago. But here's the thing. Historically, the church's intersection with emerging culture has been far less simple. When I came to E3, the concept of a church wanting to positively engage emerging culture was intriguing to me. And that's because in my teens, as I've shared before, I became agnostic or atheist, really depending on which side of the bed I woke up on any given morning. And my experience with the church-engaging culture was not positive. It wasn't great at all. You see, what I found was the church either didn't engage culture, or it did so, but only really half-heartedly through evanescent songs, throwback, or three, it did engage culture, but only really to yell at it. And that was actually the most common experience in my life. This was particularly true when I was at UF. See, there was this courtyard called Turlington Plaza that was a major throughway on campus. It was packed most days. And you could always expect to find one of these dudes there, holding a sign, railing against culture, yelling at the top of their lungs about Sodom and Gomorrah, hell, sex, drugs, rock and roll, secularism, essentially me. This was the Christian engagement of culture for me. And I would sometimes snap back at these people, which never did anything or helped anyone. But usually what I would try to do is keep my headphones in, my head down, and I would try to walk past them without being noticed. Because boy, if they looked you in the eyes and you made contact, they would yell at you in particular. It was very, very loving. But one day, I was in this weird mood. I had time to kill before my next class, and I saw a younger guy with one of these signs doing this, which was uncommon. They were usually older men. And I had this desire, for whatever reason, to learn about him as a person. Who is the man behind this action? So I sat down, the class started, the plaza emptied, and it was basically just him and I. So I started talking to him. I asked his name, how he was doing, if he had a family. He was actually really taken aback at first, but he seemed nice enough when he wasn't screaming at me. So I kept going. I'm a movie fanatic, as I've shared here often. So I asked him about movies. And y'all, it was one of the strangest social interactions I have ever had. I was like, hey, have you seen The Godfather Part Two? I love that movie, it's one of my favorites. And he was like, oh man, that's a great movie. Al Pacino's so good. And then he paused and he paused 
And then he said something along the lines of, at least I used to like that maybe before I realized the sin of lusting after wealth and greed and corruption and crime. And that's not word for word, but that's a gist of what he said. So I was like, okay, word, 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 word. Well, how about Airplane? That's a funny movie. And he was like, oh, I haven't seen that in forever. I remember it being funny. Pause. But now I realize Hollywood's corrupt morality is going to hell and it's no laughing matter. And this went on for a few movies. I don't even remember them all. I think at one point I asked about Lord of the Rings and you guessed it, going to hell because wizards and such. And eventually class ended. People began pouring back into the plaza. So he ratcheted up his yelling again. And I said, it was nice to meet you. Have a great day. He said, you too. And I left. And this interaction fascinated me. It was like he had these moments where he'd become a real human being for me, with me for a second. And then it was like he would catch himself and he would pull back to this role he was playing, to raging against culture and anyone in it, including me. And I've reflected on this interaction a lot since returning to faith. Fact is, I was exactly the person who needed the church. Curious, broken, depressive, drug addicted, wanting anyone to tell me that I was loved and could be more. I'm your target audience, dude. But his refusal to meet me where I was at, to even just talk about movies without lecturing me, it led me to walk away. It's a missed opportunity. And I think this captures how the church has often let its good desire to be distinct or holy warp into an unhealthy fear towards culture and postures that become barriers to people hearing its message, people who need it. For example, I think sometimes it warps into postures of indifference. Uniqueness gets confused with detachment from the world. The church becoming so internally focused that it ignores the world's problems which I can tell you from experience just makes it appear irrelevant or hypocritical to those outside. At times, it actually becomes a posture of arrogance. The church arrogantly forcing itself onto culture, making the invitation of good news feel far more like an imposition of bad news to those outside. Strict, oppressive, demeaning legalism that the culture doesn't understand and didn't ask for. At best, giving off ultimate old man yelling at clouds vibes, but at worst, imposing cultural assimilation, seeing cultural differences of different peoples as obstacles to finding God rather than unique and potential pathways to him, trying to erase them, hurting people and breeding resentment in the process. Or I think what I've seen most often is that this can form postures of separation. The church engaging culture without dialogue, refusing to learn the language, stories, or history of the culture before speaking into it, making its message unintelligible to the people it's trying to reach. Thus, it becomes incapable of sharing Jesus' stories in ways that connect and make sense to those outside its walls. And this struggle to intersect with emerging culture in a healthy and effective way has existed since the beginning of the church. 
It was one of the biggest conflicts for the early church in the New Testament as people from Jewish and Gentile cultures started to form a community together. But out of these conflicts, what we see in the New Testament is that there's this tradition that developed in Christianity, this belief that faith in Christ can and must shape communities that were capable of balancing living in emerging culture and remaining distinct from it of being unique, but not detached, confident, but not arrogant, prophetic, but not oppressive, living in the culture, but not being of it where it mattered most. A tradition that I think is best captured by the Apostle Paul. And it's one that I wanna to explore today through a scene in Acts chapter 17. This scene that I think provides a roadmap for approaching this intersection with emerging culture that still preaches to us today. Now, for some context. At this point in Acts, Paul is traveling through the Roman Empire, preaching and establishing these small church communities in the towns he comes through. And he's found his way to Athens, Greek, where he's invited to speak at the Areopagus, a public square where philosophers could debate publicly and essentially try to earn followers. And we pick up in verse 22, as Paul begins to speak to the crowds about Jesus. Paul then stood up in the meaning of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious or very spiritual. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you today. Now stop. Does Paul open with everything you believe is dumb and you should believe this instead? No. He begins by complimenting them, affirming that within their culture, there is a positive sense of the spiritual in our world. Then he points to one of their religious altars dedicated to this unknown God. and He engages them through it. Now, these altars were common. You see, usually they were for gods of the pantheon like Zeus, Hermes, etc. And this one in particular was for an unknown foreign god. See, the Greco-Roman gods were a fickle bunch. They were kind of hard to predict with their blessings and their curses. So what this altar is, is it's a way uh, for them to try to gain favor from gods they might have missed or don't know about yet. Hopefully, so they don't get smote by them. And Paul points to this altar saying, you acknowledge that there are gods in this world that you don't know. Well, let me speak about one such God. I think this is powerful. It shows this willingness of Paul to learn and connect through their culture's beliefs and stories, not by just throwing them out. He continues, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being as some of your own prophets have said we are his offspring. Now, at first glance, Paul is evangelizing, as we might expect. 
laying out why God is the one true creator God worthy of worship, who human beings were created to be in a relationship with. Pretty standard stuff. And he is doing that. However, if you study how Paul delivers this message, you'll realize that there's a lot more going on here. The language and format is different than many of his other sermons. And this is mega nerdy. He intentionally communicates in ways that his Greek audience would understand. He uses different Greek words than, his Jew, than when he does sermons with his Jewish audiences. His description of God as the source of life, breath, and everything is a Jewish concept worded in a popular triad from Greek philosophy. He is pulling from their own philosophical writers. The imagery of humanity groping in the dark reflects metaphors from Greek philosophy about humanity's search for divine truth. The logical flow of his arguments actually mirrors how the Greek philosopher Plato formatted his. Paul even closes by citing Greek poetry, pointing to their cultural ideas, stories, and artistic expressions as possessing kernels of truth about his God. He meets them where they're at while still inviting them to reflect on a different story at the same time. He says, yes, you're right. There's a spiritual reality. It is good that you sense that, but it's not ruled by fickle gods. No, in this story I'm sharing, God is generous and good and loving and caring for people and his creation. Yes, God is infinite. You got it. But he's not absent, distant, or abstract like many Greek philosophies say. No, in this story I'm sharing, he's present, active, loving. Humanity may, humanity may seem to be groping in the dark for meaning, but the creator of the universe can be found because he's as close as your breath. All to say, Paul doesn't walk in and throw their culture in the trash as he reaches them with Christ's message. He acknowledges their pieces of truth and then uses them to connect and to point them to the nature of God. It's not talking down. It affirms God's presence and movement among them. It's not detached. It speaks their language, engages their story, history, and ideas. Paul invites them into Christ's story in this way that's understandable to them, which may seem obvious when you say it that way, but that's a very different posture than the ones I talked about at the beginning of this message. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows either, because in verse 29, what we see is that Paul makes this almost jarring shift in tone. He goes on, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent or to change their minds. For he has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the council, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So to close, Paul launches this attack on what is the practice of idolatry which is when humans would create statues of gold and silver 
uh, to be images of various gods and then would worship them as if they were divine, as if the God lived in the statue. And this is, this is interesting. It's the only time in the entire sermon that he directly challenges Greek culture with his Jewish worldview in Christ's story, where he puts it in direct opposition to something that they believe. And y'all, this would have made people incredibly mad. Idolatry was a central part of Greco-Roman life and culture. Religiously, worshiping gods through idols was both one's heritage and how you avoided divine disaster. Again, the gods are fickle and not honoring them by honoring their idols meant risking retribution on both yourself and your community. Politically, Roman religion affirmed that in the pantheon was a god of both the emperor and the emperor himself who was divine. Thus, when you reject the pantheon, that meant treason. Economically, idol making was a major part of the Greco-Roman economy. In fact, later in Acts, in the city of Ephesus, Paul's preaching against idolatry leads to riots because it harms the economy so badly. You see how divisive this is. It completely divides his audience when he goes into them on this point. The question is why? And it's interesting because this becomes a pattern for Paul. What we see over and over again in the New Testament is that Paul meets culture where it's at up until the issue of idolatry. And then he draws this hard line in the sand. And every time it creates fierce conflict. And for Paul, I believe this is all about what the church is called to believe and how that must inform its engagement of emerging culture. I think it shows us a few things. First, it shows us that Paul believed that to reflect Christ's story, the church must be inclusive of diverse cultures in humanity. Paul gets that we all want assimilation to shape Christ's story in our specific culture's image and make our specific culture's values synonymous with the kingdom of God. To equate, for example, being American with being Christian and to confuse cultural differences from other cultures with idolatry. And what Paul believes is that when we do this, we shut the doors of the kingdom and people's faces over things that had nothing to do with the gospel. And he says, don't ever do that. He believed deeply that Jesus' story invited the whole world to enter God's kingdom and experience renewed humanity, which meant that no one people could confine God in their own cultural box, this thing that humans make. For Paul, God's people were now universal. The kingdom doors were universally open to all peoples and the church needed to reflect that reality if it believed that story. Second, I think it shows us that Paul believed that this, this, this belief, naturally produced a unique posture towards new and diverse cultures. If in Christ's story, God works and moves in all cultures, if God can't be combined in these things that humans create, then every culture must have a unique insight into what he is doing, into how he's moving, the distinct pieces of truth that help form an image of who he is as the infinite creator God of all people. And recognizing that meant that the church's posture must be one of humble curiosity in Paul's mind. 
They must be willing to teach Christ's story within each people and culture through humility and mutual relationship by engaging its language and stories and listening for God speaking through them, open to both teaching and learning from them in return. Again, a very different posture than what we talked about at the beginning of this sermon. But third, I think this shows us something else that's very important. Paul believed that this must be balanced with a steadfast commitment to the prophetic voice. You see, for Paul, every culture had idols, things, humans within them created, worshipped as God, that were the antithesis of what Christ wanted for our world. Things that were not God. And thus, when we worship them, we diminish both him as Lord of creation and ourselves as image bearers of God. Which meant the church must be a community that challenged idolatry wherever it was found as part of its invitation to people from all over the world to come and find the freedom of God from what's broken our world through Christ. And you see Paul over and over in the New Testament do this relentlessly. But here's what's interesting. He didn't just shout at culture. Paul always started with the church itself, challenging the church when it let idolatry seep into how it lived in the world. Because for Paul, the church doesn't have a right to shout at and challenge culture over idols when it's helping create and feed them. It can't offer people a different path away from the idols that have broken our world if it isn't walking that path itself. And we may not sacrifice goats to statues named Zeus and Hermes, but like every culture on earth and in history, we still have our idols today. And as the American church, we must follow Paul's example in naming, repenting from, and deconstructing our forays with these idols, past, present, and future. Where we have and continue to sacrifice marriages, families, and health to the idols of workaholism and careerism, the poor and the marginalized to idols of greed, human lives to the idols of war, violence, nationalism, power, tribalism, and empire where we have and continue to sacrifice the destinies of image bearers of God to racism through slavery, Jim Crow, and present-day white supremacy. And there are no doubt many more. It's hard to name these things, but for Paul, this is a crucial part of our roadmap for how the church lives at this intersection with emerging culture in the way that Christ calls it to as a community that includes and affirms the positive aspects of the diverse cultures of humanity while at the same time identifying, challenging, and deconstructing idolatry in us and our world wherever it is found, inviting people from all nations and all peoples and all cultures to find freedom from their bondage with the humility of doing so in a way that they understand. And y'all, Navigating that intersection is dangerous. Paul's message in his time was subversive. He called Roman Christians to live and engage Roman culture peacefully 
while at the same time professing that they had a new empire, a new emperor, and that they had a God that didn't reside in the empty, hollow idols of Roman worship. And Rome had no idea what to do with that kind of a community. They knew what to do with uprising and competing military empires, but not this community where despite Roman hierarchy and culture, slaves and masters ate together as equals, where people rejected oppression and injustice and took care of the poor by sacrificing themselves, where outsiders and society and culture found new families, were lifted high and found a new story about who they are and a God who loved them. That's a community that turns everything upside down, that can't be put into a singular cultural box. It's subversive and it's dangerous then and today. But it's who the church is called to be. And man, when the church gets that right, that balance that we see in the New Testament drew people to the early church in droves, despite the danger that it caused them. I mean, Acts is just full of stories about people coming to see Jesus as king from wildly different cultures and backgrounds. You even see it in this text as it closes. Dionysius, this intellectual aristocrat from the center of Athens philosophy, follows Paul and adopts Christ's story. And according to church tradition, he eventually goes on to become the first archbishop of Athens. I mean, it's a story of someone finding Christ and new life through Paul, a man willing to meet him where he was at and preach Christ's love to him in a way that honored him, loved him, was understandable. In E3, if we can be that, we will reach people, change lives, and be changed in return. I think we will be a community of radically transformed disciples living at the dangerous intersection of deep faith, authentic community, and emerging culture. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. That's the kind of community that I think reflects Christ's kingdom to our world. Amen. Amen. So, as we end this series with communion, uh, by going to the Lord's table, the sacrament about our worship of our Creator God, we do so remembering how He came to meet us where we were at, so He could love us, give Himself for us, make us who we are created to be. And as we take part in this story, I challenge you to move out from here, thinking to relinquish your own idols, find healing, and better model his character to our world and the emerging culture in which we live. On the day or the night he gave himself for us, he took bread and gave thanks to you and broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, 
gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Amen.